a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Once again, we are ready to revel in wrong think. I guess it's appropriate that uh, my friend and fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters, joins us once again. Hello, Eric. Hey, Brian. Good to be back. How are things looking from the uh, front lines of the mandate resistance? Well, I'll tell you a quick little vignette or story. I actually put on a mask yesterday because I had to do some sanding in my wood shop, and a, <laughs> wow. a mask is actually a mask Sell is out. actually useful in the, in that respect because it keeps me from breathing in uh, uh, the the particles of of the wood shavings, which you can actually see. Uh, unlike the virus, which penetrates the face diaper, which is also the holy rag, and I don't um, I don't subscribe to strange cultic religions, and so therefore I don't wear that thing. All right. Now, I, look, you have been one of the most consistent and I think principled uh, warriors on the front lines of the resistance. Um, tell me what you see taking place in, in your neck of the woods. I know your governor has been pretty mm-hmm. uh, aggressive in terms of uh, lockdown mandates. What's what's the latest in the Commonwealth of Virginia? Well, he's been one of the most aggressive in the entire country. And he recently decreed a ratcheting up of all of these uh, sickness, psychosis restrictions, including a supposed um, curfew in effect from 12 in the evening until 5 in the morning, and more draconian wearing of the holy vestment, the holy rag, uh, and limiting of gatherings to no more than 10, etc., and so on. And I, I ground my teeth a little bit when I heard about that because I was dreading that my, my oasis of sanity, which is my gym where I go to work out every day, um, was going to uh, start demanding the, the genuflection before the sickness cult, but they have not, and there has been no change that I can see anywhere. It's still pretty much um, business as usual, if you can use that term, in that there are still plenty of places where you can go and not be harassed for not having joined the cult. So that's good. And I posted something this morning that gets into some of the active uh, acts of resistance that are uh, occurring. I don't know if you caught this, but a guy in California went into a Costco and actually jumped up on a table Patrick Henry style with a bullhorn. <laughs> Did you see it? I haven't, but now I want to. Yeah, well, the video is embedded in my most recent article, which is on the main page of the site. And you can see him. He's just, and he's very reasonable, and he, he articulates the problem here about this mindless, blind obedience to these bizarre rituals and how very dangerous it is. Uh, and what a brave guy for doing that. And then all the way across the country in New Jersey, we've got the owner of the Attila Gym, which I think you're familiar with because you am. and I have discussed this before. Yep. And this guy, what a stalwart patriot he is. What a man he is. He and his partner have refused to shutter their gym, and they are not imposing any kind of face diapering decrees on the people who go in. And they've reopened it despite the Gesundheitsführers imposing brutal fines. I think they have uh, tallied something like a million dollars in fines thus far. So he is literally putting everything on the line, and not just for himself, but for the principal. And that guy is a hero, to use that much overused and tiresome word, but it's applicable in this case. 
Uh, I just I heard from a listener of mine earlier this week, uh, a guy named Rob who was writing in from Pennsylvania, and he was talking about how Governor Wolf there had it had issued this mandate about how you know that we're going to have to shut down the restaurants, but only for this critical three weeks through the holidays, you know, until early January. You know, which is like yeah. the best three weeks in the business for the restaurant industry. But he said the resistance in Pennsylvania, and we're talking all over the place. There are so many restaurants that were opening up. And yeah, I know in the past, when you know I've talked, you, you've talked about businesses where you say, I have to be careful because I don't mm-hmm. want to get the, the, you know, the sickness police sicked on them. Um, this, this reader, Rob, was just saying, look, these people are, are very openly on social media saying we're open. Please come and support us. And he said mm-hmm. the turnout is overwhelming. Yeah, well, I think it's gotten to uh, the point of it literally being a, a matter of, of life and death, at least economic life and death. I think these businesses are beginning to realize that it's not just for a week or two. This has been going on for, what, almost a year now, nine months? Yep. And it can't go on any longer. They are going to be ruined and destroyed by this, and enough is enough. I think people are beginning to get tired of it, and thank God I think people are beginning to finally push back against it. Well, it's, you know, the, the threat of not just, you know, fines and, and possibly tickets or maybe even arrest, but also that threat of being ostracized socially. That's a more powerful tool than I think a lot of people realize. Well, it is up to a point. But, okay, you're going to lose your business. You're going to lose your livelihood, which probably means you're going to lose your home. You're probably going to lose your ability to care for your family if you can't work anymore and earn any money. So what have you got left at that point? What have you got left to risk, in other words? No, I, I, I agree. And in fact, I was talking with a, with a friend earlier today about, uh, you know, and, and then we've got the stimulus checks that keep coming. And her comment was, is, do you think they're just trying to make everybody dependent on government? You know, keep these small businesses shut down, you know, for safety, but mm-hmm. in, until they're just not viable any longer so we can get everybody on the government teat. Well, yeah, exactly. What they're trying to do is, is reorient the entire system. That's why they call it the Great Reset. First of all, destroy the existing business model, particularly for the, the small businesses and the independents. And then when they restart it, what they'll do is make everything conditional on their government largesse. So if you accept the money of the government, um, which will, of course, be doled out preferentially according to how woke you are, how obedient you are, uh, you will do exactly what the government says. That's what they want. There, there is not just a, a, a random happenstance that these lockdowns did not affect these big corporate retail outlets, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, the big supermarket chains. They have done bang-up business throughout all of this, and the object is to crush the independent small businessman, because the independent small businessman, the, the self-employed person, doesn't need the government, and does not have to obey the government. And by getting, by getting everybody into this sort of corporate company town system and economically dependent for literally their lives, you know, in order to eat and have a, have a roof over your head, they can compel everybody to just duck their head and do what they're told and institute this system of neo-modern serfdom and feudalism that is the goal of all of this. Seems like this might be a good time to revisit uh, the uh, imperative of occupational licensing or business licensure as well, since that's, that's the leverage that's being used against many of these small business owners. Of course, you know, it, the question ought to be asked, why is it that in a free country you should be required to beg leave of the government in order to conduct legitimate business? Now, I know the argument, uh, counter-argument to that is, well, we have to have standards. You know, the government is just making sure everybody's keeping everybody safe, but that's not the role of the government in a free society. Right. The role of the government in a free society is to protect our rights. 
including the right to transact business with one another if we wish to do so. Now, if, if something goes awry, there are other remedies for that. There are civil and criminal uh, ways to remedy people who are fraudulent or incompetent or reckless and what have you. Uh, the fundamental idea here, though, is that you should not have to beg permission to transact lawful business. That's absurd. That's obscene, actually. Okay, I'm going to get subversive here for a moment, but I, but I have to ask your take on this because of previous conversations we've had about the Samizdat um, economy. Mm-hmm. How likely is it that, uh, that we could create a parallel, if not underground, economy to sidestep some of this uh, bureaucratic pressure? Well, right now, we're kind of like two antagonists in the ring. You know, picture... Uh, you know, uh, Rocky versus Mr. T, with Rocky representing freedom and Mr. T representing the government corporate nexus. And it's a question of who's going to win. Uh, it will be a battle, and it will depend on how aggressively these Gesundheitsführers uh, who are in bed with these big corporations um, are going to push back and how aggressively we're going to push back, whether they're literally going to send out shock troops to mass arrest and dragoon into prison and uh, criminalize economic activity. They may well do that, and then it comes down to how willing are we to stand up and resist and and not obey, and if necessary, God help us, fight back against that if we have to. Agreed. And I think some of the most egregious examples of what happens when you don't, just look at how uh, the police are flexing their authority in places like New Zealand and Australia, the the U.K. Um, People are, are, are being hauled off in handcuffs for ridiculously inappropriate reasons. They absolutely are. Now, I will say there, there is um, a bright spot in the sky in this country. It's uh, in the form of a number of sheriffs around the country, police departments, even in places like California, which you wouldn't expect, have publicly said, these are not individual officers, I'm talking about the, the person in charge, the sheriff, the captain, whoever, have said they will not enforce these decrees anymore. And that's popping up everywhere. I also have a couple of links in my latest article about that. And that's wonderful news. That's really heartening news to me, and the more of that happens, uh, the sooner we can put an end to all of this. We've got about 30 seconds before the break, but Eric, what can people do to reinforce, positively reinforce law enforcement leaders who who take that uh, principled stand? Well, make a call. I mean, even show up in person and tell them how grateful you are for them taking a stand. It's, as in anything in life, it's important for us to identify, support, and reward good things and good people, just as it is to shun bad things and bad people. Here, here. All right, we've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I'm going to have a link to his website as well as some of the various articles that we are discussing today. We will take a very quick break. Got a couple of bills to pay. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, you, you kind of cut your teeth as an automotive writer. I mean, you're mm-hmm. a great freedom commentator, but I love to read what you have to say about uh, the automotive industry, latest developments. We're going to talk about some good news here in a few minutes, but mm-hmm. talk to me about uh, the transformation that has taken place <laughs> at General Motors. You actually have a new name for them. Yeah, Affirmative Motors. 
Uh, I wrote a column the other day about General Motors, along with a number of other big corporations, there we go again, common denominator, having joined up with something called the 110 Initiative, which is it's an overtly racist uh, bean-counting program designed to hire people specifically on account of their race. It's, it's this, this total upending and inversion of everything that is said, like on the one hand, we, you know, racism is bad. We don't want to judge people according to that. Give them give them special privileges because of their their race. But then we're going to impose policies whereby we hire people based on their race. It's the craziest thing. You know, I sit back and I watch how how corporate America is becoming one of the most woke institutions that I've ever seen. And I was, I mean, look, I grew up during the era of, you know, the Wall Street film, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Mm -hmm. And so supposedly money is what drives every decision in corporate America. What is possibly in it for them to embrace this woke mentality? Well, you know, there are a lot of facets to this, and I think one of them is that these companies really don't make things anymore, do they? Uh, instead, they, they, they sell services, they mine data, they manipulate things. It's a very odd thing. General Motors in 1970 had about 50% of the entire North American market. It now has, I think, 16.7% of the market. So it's lost nearly two-thirds of what it had once. Uh, and now, so it, I guess, decides that it's better to sell virtue than it is to sell cars. It's, it's, it's just, it's a very, very odd and bizarre thing. And a function of it, I think, or a reason for it, is that a lot of the people who are now ruling these car companies are not car people. They, you know, they just happen to be in charge of a car company, but they really want to sell something else. And over at GM, Mary Barra, who's the current CEO, is a very good example of that. She's obviously not that particularly interested in cars. She's very interested, however, in selling diversity and virtue and even face diapers. General Motors became one of the major manufacturers of the whole investment during this, uh, this whole ridiculous pandemic thing. Well, that could explain some of the opportunism. I, I just don't know why it isn't more obvious to people, as you point out in your article, that, look, the people who are obsessed with race, whether, whether it's for the sake of, you know, hating others because of their race or trying to, uh, to extend advantage to others because of their race, mm-hmm. are the ones who are behaving as racist. They're the ones focused on race. The rest of us, I think, are pretty much colorblind and willing to just accept people based on their, their character and their, you know, their behavior towards us. Of course. There's this fallacy of systemic racism. That's the popular term now. But it's absurd when you think about it because there's absolutely no bar. If anything, uh, it's the opposite to the ascension of people who aren't white or male or even heterosexual uh, up the food chain. You know, there's no, there's no impediment in terms of being elected to uh, office and spouting uh, the most bizarre and obscene rhetoric, by the way, once, uh, once actually ensconced, or uh, to work in any, any form of employment. There are, no, there are no barriers, no legal restrictions to any of this. And most of us, you're right, there might be the occasional old person somewhere, you know, who grew up in a different time and who may hold these views, but by and large, most of us we just want to get along and we just want to transact our business and tra- transact our lives and stop obsessing about what hue people are. Well, and if, if you get out in society, this was pointed out by a friend a few years ago. He was flying cross-country on some kind of a business trip and landed, I think it was in Atlanta, which, you know, there, there's a lot of blacks in Atlanta. And he just, he made the comment. He said, I interacted with a ton of different people. And you know what? Every person I encountered was kind and genuinely seemed to want to get along. 
And he says, mm-hmm. I think that's more the norm than not. It's just it's the yep. Al Sharptons out there that, that seem to want to seek some kind of advantage to want to stir up um, discord where there really isn't any to start with. Yeah, the Al Sharptons and the virtue signals, signalers like Mary Barra, exactly, who continue to make an issue out of race so as to perpetuate racism. This accomplishes nothing uh, other than to, to manufacture grievance, create friction, and uh, just perpetuate whatever problem remains. If anything, it's making the problem worse than it would have been otherwise if events just were allowed to naturally follow their course. I agree completely. Let's shift gears. I want to talk about some good news. You, you had a recent column about how it's not all bad, and you're specifically mm-hmm. talking about some of the good news from, uh, from the automotive industry. What, uh, mm-hmm. what did you see that is noteworthy and that should put a smile on our faces? Well, you and I probably have seen it because we've seen both. You can probably remember when we were in high school and, and what torture it was sometimes to try to do an oil change on Dad's car. Remember oh, yeah. that? Oh, yeah. How hard it was to reach the oil filter. They, they, would, they would just ferret that thing up against the firewall or hang it off the engine somewhere where another piece of the engine was in its way. Whereas I've noticed, and I, you know, I drive new cars every week to review, and as part of that I always pop the hood and look under the hood, and I often crawl underneath the car too and look at it. And I've noticed over the last several years that all the manufacturers just about are clearly making an effort to make vehicles more uh, do-it-yourself serviceable as far as things like oil changes and basic procedures. You'll see in many cases now that the oil filter is actually right there on top of the engine, and you hardly even need a tool to take it off. You can just put your hand on it and turn it out, which is super nice, right? Uh, and the drain plug usually is pretty accessible, so it's made that kind of a thing a lot easier. And, of course, other things, for example, there's, um, most cars now have a single serpentine belt rather than remember the multiple individual belts <laughs> that you used to have to tension and adjust and, and what a knuckle buster that was. Oh, yeah. Now you just slip off that, that serpentine belt, and literally you slip it off. There's a tensioner. You put a crescent wrench on it or a socket, and you apply a little bit of pressure, and that loosens it. You pop it off. And then you pop the new one on, and you release the tensioner, and boom, it's perfectly adjusted, and you're done. Easy peasy. Uh, And there are other examples of that kind of thing, too. So, yeah, it's true. New cars are a lot more complicated uh, than they once were. But in a lot of ways, they're also easier to service in terms of just the everyday basic things that we used to have to do all the time. Something that surprised me in your article was you wrote about spark plugs. And I, I did not realize how... Uh, how low maintenance, uh, you know, this mm-hmm. this particular part of, uh, of, you know, servicing your engine had become. Well, part of that is just due to the fact that engine management systems now are so precise and the air-fuel ratio is so perfectly controlled um, that spark plugs don't get fouled as easily. Ignition systems are much more powerful, and spark plugs are generally uh, of a much higher quality than they once were. So, as a rule... You generally don't have to deal with a spark plug but once every 100,000 miles or so, and even then it's often just a matter of uh, pulling them out, look at them, make sure they're okay and the gap is correct, and put them back in, as opposed to when you and I were in high school and you had to do that like once every 12 months. Remember that? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, as you point out in the article, that means, you know, for some people, you may be looking at a couple of spark spark plug changes over the course of of your car's life. Yeah, maybe two. You figure once every 100,000 miles, so that's 200,000 miles. That's pretty much it. So, you know, twice over the course of 15 or 20 years, uh, which greatly reduces the burden on you uh, and also decreases the expense. You know, it's a, it's, it used to be a fairly big deal to have to go get that annual tune-up, which included the spark plugs, sometimes points, ignition adjustment, set the choke, clean the carburetor, all of that. Most any new car that you buy right now, you'll be able to drive it for years before it needs anything other than just an oil change and maybe brake pads. 
Gotta love that. Got about a minute here, Eric. Let's talk about your website, mm-hmm. and and again, I would encourage you. Um, let's let's give a shout out and some love to your sponsors. Oh sure, absolutely. Uh, of course, there's Valentine One, uh, maker of the best radar detectors on the market. Also, uh, Amsoil Products, which includes oils uh, for the engine, transmission fluid, gear lube, and all of those kinds of things. Um, and I'm trying to think of what else, and I haven't had enough coffee this morning, so I can't come up with it. But, yeah, anything you can do to, to, to help uh, our sponsors helps. And, of course, if you feel like supporting the site, you can do that directly. There's a button there that will take you to PayPal, and you can toss a couple of bucks in a tin. And to those who do that, I, I, I happily send out a little EP Autos magnet that you can put on your refrigerator or on the back of your car if, if you'd like to. And I would encourage my listeners, please, go visit his website. Look, we all need some good news or just some encouragement that somebody is, is still thinking straight and, and, and seeing things as they are. Eric is the guy. And, Eric, thank you so much for joining me again today. You bet, Brian. Look forward to next week. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, I have a little housekeeping I need to take care of here. But it's a very pleasant kind of housekeeping. If you follow me on social media, you may have seen that uh, I, I have these uh, these wonderful mugs for my show. I've got swag. I mean, it's it's the first time in my life I feel like, hey, maybe maybe I've arrived somewhat. But uh, but I have this uh, this wonderful the Brian Hyde Show mug. Revel in wrong think uh, the logo designed by my oldest daughter Mason, and and it's awesome. I mean, I, look, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. She's the one who came up with the logo, but it is it is a perfect caricature of me. Every single person I've showed it to went, wow, she really captured you. And so here's the thing. I've been, uh, I, I ordered a case of these mugs, and I have been uh, sending them to, uh, to patrons of the Brian Hyde Show. And I've, I've had a few that I'm giving as Christmas gifts, but the, the thing is, I, the demand is going up. As people start posting pictures of them on social media, hey, I got my mug. You know, now more people are, hey, where can I get one? And so I, I want to share with you, I'm trying to work out the best way to get these mugs to those who want them. Here's the thing, though. Shipping. The U.S. Postal Service, in its infinite wisdom, has made it to where uh, for, for me to cover the cost of the mug as well as the shipping, it's going to put it right at about $20. And that, to me, that seems like a lot, a lot for a mug. So I'm still working on a couple of possible solutions, but um, if you're one of those who's expressed a desire to have your own uh, Brian Hyde Show mug, it's uh, it's in the foreseeable future. But uh, but I've got a couple of kinks here that I'm trying to work through, and one of them is I I just I I only want to cover my cost. I'm not trying to make money on these. I just think it's kind of cool to have some swag out there. Now I'm going to segue into something else here, which is kind of related. And that is, when I asked my daughter, this was back in July, I asked her, can you come up with some kind of a logo for me? You know, she, she immediately thought, okay, well, there's a podcast and, and broadcast. How do we do this? Everybody has a microphone. It's, it's so cliche. We all have microphones now, you know. I'm talking and, you know. 
So she wanted to come up with something that was different but memorable, and that's where she she basically just she captured this this caricature of my glasses and my beard. And you would think, oh, and that's that's enough to tell us that it's you. But I mean, if if you haven't seen it, well, if you've seen the show logo, you've seen it. So it, yeah, it it captures me very very well, and it's impressive. And in fact, I was I was interviewing a, a guest here uh, well a couple of weeks ago. And this young lady who is a, a star, and I mean that in every sense. She is like nationally known as a writer, as a commentator. And she made the comment, I want to talk to whoever designed your logo. And so I put my daughter in touch with her. And I don't know about you, but uh, I, I think we all sometimes suffer from that feeling of imposter syndrome. And, and, and my daughter has been feeling that so strong, like, oh, maybe this was a one-off. Maybe she's always been talented. She's always had, you know, artistic ability. But she's been very nervous about, uh, should I try to design a logo for this, this other young lady? And I've been encouraging her to do it. You know, and, and, and like, a, like a dad, I'm, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Well, what if she doesn't like it? And it got me thinking, yeah, what, what if she doesn't? Do we count that as a failure? Do we say, oh, you know, you never should have tried? So that's a conversation I've kind of been having back and forth with my daughter. And look, I understand. <clears throat> I struggle sometimes with feelings of imposter syndrome myself. Like one of these days I'm going to wake up and people are going to go, why do we even listen to this guy? He's just some bearded weirdo with a microphone and, you know, they're, they're going to realize uh, <laughs> that I, I'm, I'm really not all that, which I, I'm really, I'm, I'm not all that. But it brings us to the subject of failure. And in particular, I got a question for you. When's the last time you asked yourself, how can I fail today? Now, that probably sounds kind of self-defeating, right? Well, why would, you, why would you want to set yourself up like that? Here's what Kent McManigal has to say. This is just a short and sweet essay of his that I found yesterday. He says, how can I fail today? That may seem a defeatist way to think, but he says, it actually spurs me to action. He says, I've never succeeded at anything. I could either let that fact paralyze me, make me think, what's the point of even trying and just stay in bed? He says, I was there 20 years ago for a few months. Don't want to do that again. Or I can let it motivate me to try something else. So he says, recently I decided to embrace the second way with enthusiasm. Now listen to this. He says, every day I get up and I ask myself, what can I fail at today? And then I do something, something I assume will fail. But he says, at least I've learned something. Maybe I've also learned from it. Learned what doesn't work, but he says, I've learned. And maybe someday one of those things will fail to fail. For his sake, I'm kind of hoping that's, that's the case. He says, this keeps me trying new things. It gives me boldness not to worry that it will fail. I assume it will. This is freedom. The more failures I can accumulate, the more chance I have of something that will eventually succeed. No matter what facet of life I'm dabbling in, if not, he says, maybe I can be the champion of failing. Is there an award for that? Even if everything continues to fail, at least I didn't just lie in a corner and rot. I stayed busy. I kept trying. That's got to count for something. Now, I don't know if you agree with him or disagree with him. I'll let you make up your own mind, but this spoke to me. In fact, I'm going to be forwarding this to my daughter a little bit later on today because I, I want her to see this and just... Understand, um, I was asked, I was a guest on, on the Way to the Top 
podcast uh, last week with uh, James West and with uh, Latroy Woods. And these are two just remarkable young men, entrepreneurs, uh, go-getters, very motivational. I love their approach to life. And one of the questions they asked me as their guest was, what was your biggest failure? That's a pretty bold question to ask somebody, right? Because we like to put our best foot forward, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I had to stop and think about it. And in retrospect, there was an answer that I gave them. But I think if I had had a little more time to think and didn't have to, you know, shoot from the hip, so to speak, my biggest failure, I think, would have been all those years that I spent trying to avoid failing. Does that make sense? I don't know. Some people just don't have that mindset, and, and and God bless them. They're the ones who inspire us to try and just continue to reach and grow because they prove that it can be done, that you can achieve. But for so long, I just wanted to play it careful, and well, I'm going to be really cautious and make sure I take a very conservative approach here so nothing could possibly go wrong. And I have to tell you, you know, life was pretty comfortable for the most part, but there was a definite snank of uh, mediocrity that came along with it. And and I'm not proclaiming that uh, since that time I have changed my ways and I've become this uh, penultimate success. <laughs> not quite at the top, but real close. Um, no, actually, my life has just taken on so much more depth and meaning when I became willing to step out of the comfort zone, became willing to fail, and started recognizing failure as uh, not not an end, not to the final destination, but simply, you know, one of the mileposts on the way. And I still don't like to fail. I don't think anybody does. But you sure learn things that you just can't learn when everything is going swimmingly, right? When it all goes according to plan, that's not when we're at our best. We are at our best when we actually have to stretch and strain. And even if we fail, we're better for having stretched and tried to reach that mark. So you'll find a, you'll find a link to this in the show notes. Again, this is Kent McManigal. And uh, what? how can I fail today, actually? How can I fail today? Look for it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, I got to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I'm going to share some excerpts uh, from the latest column from Jim Quinn, who operates the burningplatform.com. Jim always has great analysis of what's going on around us, and he does not disappoint as he talks about uh, time to heal. This is one of the unofficial slogans of the new uh, Biden Harris uh, administration that apparently will be incoming in in, in uh, January. But uh, he doesn't spell it time to heal as in H-E-A-L. It's time to heal as in H-E-E-L. Heal. <laughs> I think you're going to like what he has to say. Our show is brought to you in part today by our friends at Alta Bank. That is my friend John Staples. John is a mortgage lender. He is the guy you want to talk to. Now, this is going to primarily apply to my listeners within the state of Utah. Just know that Alta Bank has the resources. The interest rates are incredibly low right now like unbelievably low. Like it's a very busy time in a very hot real estate market, and if it's something you've been thinking about, either a new home loan or a refi, this is the time to jump on it. You'll find the contact information in the link at the bottom of today's show notes. 
That's December 15th, 2020 at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back with Jim Quinn's commentary right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so glad you are part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. And I would ask you, if you find value in, uh, in what you hear on this program, what you find in my show notes, spread the word. You know, drop a link here and there on social media. Let others know that uh, this is one of the many outlets out there trying to uh, fill that gap and speak the truth and, and bring a little bit of light to a situation where a lot of people are trying to figure out what's going on, what can I do. Well, I, as far as the what's going on thing, this is one of the tough things because there are some painful truths that unfortunately have to be faced. And you have to face them squarely. You have to face them without equivocation. And if you are one of those people who's very serious about thinking for yourself and owning your own worldview, Jim Quinn's latest analysis called Time to Heal is a very solid recounting of uh, how so many people have been misled and gaslighted by those who would tr- twist the truth for their own opportunistic ambitions. And he starts with a letter from uh, Aldous Huxley to George Orwell. This was written back in 1949. Aldous Huxley said, Whether in actual fact the policy of boot on the face can go on indefinitely seems doubtful. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and satisfying its lust for power. And these ways will resemble those which I described in Brave New World. Within the next generation, I believe that the world's rulers will discover that infant conditioning and narco-hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of government than clubs and prisons, and that lust for power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people into their loving servitude as by flogging and kicking them into obedience. Now, Jim Quinn says, Huxley's vision of the future held sway for the next five decades as generation after generation underwent government social indoctrination in public schools, medicating those who didn't conform, reduced, con- reduced dissent, incessant propaganda from government-controlled media convinced the masses to consume, obey, and feel, no thinking allowed, and learn to love their debt servitude. Orwell's vision has taken precedence since September 11, 2001, slowly at first, but rapidly in the last year. A population drowning in cultural irrelevancy, ego-enhancing distractions, and technological gadgetry making them dumber are now being corralled using electronic surveillance, totalitarian dictates by government lackeys, the shredding of the Constitution, intense propaganda, Soviet-style censorship of speech, and third-world-style fraudulent elections to install the deep state-chosen puppet leader. The age of Huxley's brave new world has degenerated into Orwell's 1984 and Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. And he's got a great quote here from Solzhenitsyn. Violence does not always and necessarily lunge straight for your throat. More often than not, it demands of its subjects only that they pledge allegiance to lies, that they participate in falsehood. President-select Trojan dementia patient Joe Biden has been attempting to utter the words his handlers put on his teleprompter on the rare occasions when they let him out of the basement. Time to heal. 
has been the slogan his PR flunkies have told him to yammer about regarding their fake plan to reunite the country after surviving four years of the bad orange man. The propaganda machine gushed with praise for all Biden's deep state apparatchik cabinet selections as Biden's handlers attempt to engineer a third Obama term. Biden is the clueless, nice guy dupe who mouths words of reconciliation, unity, and healing while his fabricating financier global fascist controllers implement their Great Reset plan in conjunction with their global elite co-conspirators. CNN conducts an interview with third-grade-level questions designed to comfort the ignorant masses. Not one challenging question about his bagman Hunter, or how he got 80 million votes without campaigning, putting forth his agenda, or leaving his basement. CNN and the rest of the propaganda corporate media are just a division of the Democrat Party, along with Facebook, Twitter, Google, Soros, Bloomberg, CIA, FBI, and the rest of the deep state empire. He says our descent into darkness is being built upon the lies of our government, lies of medical experts, lies of the media and journalists paid to perpetuate falsehoods, and a globalist manufactured hysteria over a flu designed to initiate the Great Reset. The majority of Americans are fearfully following the dictatorial mandates of their authoritarian governors and mayors to lock down harder and mask more because science... And even though the current surge in cases is happening in states, counties, and cities that have been locked down and masked for months, the lack of independent thought being exhibited by the average American is a sickening display of willful ignorance. Jim Quinn says anyone with an ounce of critical thinking skills can see masks do not stop this virus. But they are a fantastic control mechanism for our masters. They would also realize the case-demic is being driven by a PCR test set at a level to exaggerate positivity, whether you actually feel sick or not. They would comprehend only 6% of reported COVID deaths are actually from COVID, and not one of their other three other severe maladies. They would realize over 40% of all deaths have been in nursing homes due to governor negligence, and the average age of COVID death of 82 is higher than the average age of death. The mathematical ignorance of the masses has allowed the authoritarians to keep them cowering and unable to comprehend the truth about this scamdemic. He says the lies and falsehoods leading up to, during and in the month since the presidential election, have been ratcheted up to a level not thought possible a few years ago. But the ravenous desire of the deep state to rid themselves of Trump forced them to unwittingly reveal their traitorous schemes as they were forced to take drastic, desperate measures in the swing states during the early morning hours of November 4th to steal the election from Donald Trump. With the unequivocal, blind allegiance of their media mouthpieces in the corporate media, the massive fraud which took place in multiple states has been covered up and buried by the Biden cheerleader squad at CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, and now Fox. Now, of course, the real citizen journalists in the alternate media have been investigating, questioning, and uncovering the coordinated election fraud in key swing states and those key states, those key cities where Soros elected attorneys general, secretaries of state, and district attorneys have conspired with Democrat governors, corporate media outlets, and social media billionaires to steal this election for a basement-dwelling dementia patient. He says when you grasp the implications of a conspiracy of Silicon Valley billionaires, left-wing media outlets, Soros, Bloomberg, Wall Street, shadowy dark money contributors, leadership of the DOJ, FBI, CIA, and the Democrat Party, 
to rig and steal a presidential election. You realize our country has been captured by a treacherous band of evil quislings. This was not an accidental convergence of happenstances, leading to the election of the dynamic, inspirational leader of the Democrat Party. This was a coordinated conspiracy to override the legitimate votes of Americans by a cadre of diabolical, deviant globalists attempting to implement their communist Great Reset on an unsuspecting populace cowering in fear from a purposely overhyped flu. They didn't need their senile Manchurian candidate to leave his basement because they had rigged voting machines, implemented a mail-in fraud scheme, censored derogatory info about their candidate's corruption, funneled a billion dollars into promoting their gaff robot, and their social media legions used algorithms to skew searches and put their thumb on the scale to benefit their president select. Isn't that interesting? By the way, the, the Hunter Biden suppression of his story and now it's coming out well hey look he's under investigation after much of the mass media said oh this is nothing more than russian disinformation and people say but there's no such thing as conspiracy (laughs) okay man hey believe what you want to believe whatever lets you sleep at night but uh you know try not to sound too pious when you're you know ridiculing those who have noticed something that apparently we weren't supposed to notice Jim Quinn talks about how the the suppression of truth took place with the the fact-checking on on social media. He says, we know Google manipulated their search algorithms to favor Democrat left-wing candidates and points of view. We know Twitter shadow bans popular conservative voices while promoting left-wing posts. These Silicon Valley titans of tyranny have mastered the art of suppressing and burying the truth as a means of controlling the ignorant masses. By not reporting the unvarnished factual truth and trumpeting falsehoods, misinformation, and outright lies, these duplicitous billionaires impose their globalist dogma upon an unsuspecting gullible populace. Now, there's much more to this article. There was one line here that I really wanted to share with you. Here it is. The truth has been subjugated, twisted like a DNA strand, engineered for World Economic Forum agenda purposes, deplatformed by the Silicon Valley censorship police and transformed into the big lie in order to execute a well-thought-out plan to subjugate the masses. You want to know why people are angry? It's not because the orange man lost. It's because people are starting to recognize that these uh, individuals and organizations that have, have been working so hard to subjugate the masses are so confident in their ability to carry out their plans, they're not even trying to hide it anymore. I'll have a link to this article from Jim Quinn in the show notes. It's a long article. It is well worth your time. You just have to be willing to swallow some unsugar-coated hard truths, but I think you'll be better for it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.